0: Welcome to WMFA, a podcast about why and how we write. I'm Courtney Ballastier, and this week I'm speaking with Danielle Evans, whose latest collection, The Office of Historical Corrections, is out now from Riverhead Books. Danielle is the author of the story collection Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, winner of the PEN America, PEN Robert W. Bingham Prize, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, and the Patterson Prize, and a National Book Foundation Five Under Thirty-five selection. Her stories have appeared in many magazines and anthologies, including the Best American Short Stories. She teaches in the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University.
1: We often act as if people in fiction don't have politics, but like people in the world have politics. You know, I'm not afraid to pull that awareness into the world because a lot of our dialogue, sometimes even our sort of most intimate fights, are about politics. Like Politics is fundamentally the system of values by
0: which we decide who we want to protect, The stunning short stories and novella that make up the Office of Historical Corrections explore themes of race, history, autonomy, gender, and identity on personal and global levels in ways that are both surprising and prescient. In Why Don't Women Just Say What They Want, a male artist stages an elaborate performance art piece consisting of public apologies to women he's very intimately wronged. The protagonist of Boys Go to Jupiter thoughtlessly ignites a college campus scandal about the Confederate flag, then stokes its flames while processing deep grief and guilt over losses from her past. The titular novella involves a government entity, the Institute for Public History, tasked with posting public corrections of historical inaccuracies. When Cassie, a black IPH agent, is sent to Wisconsin to correct a correction made by another black female agent who she's known since childhood, the narrative evolves into a mesmerizing historical thriller. But these brief descriptions don't do justice to the nuance and richness of Danielle's writing or its precision and insight. In the novella, The Office of Historical Corrections, Cassie describes a contemporary crisis of truth. And Danielle reflects this crisis back to the reader in myriad ways throughout the collection, large and small, public and private, intellectual and emotional. Throughout, characters revisit history, often versions of it that they've sanitized to be more palatable, more entertaining, or less damning. The question of corrections, whether they're possible and how, hovers throughout. Here, we discuss the work of writing about issues while also keeping character front and center. We also talk about exploring the tension between the exterior and interior self, as well as active and emotional plotting, and how Danielle works with both. At WMFA's Patreon page, Danielle and I talk about race and the craft of writing. You can hear this and other bonus segments by visiting patreon.com slash WMFA podcast and pledging just $2 a month. Congratulations on this collection, which I just think is is really, truly incredible and, and something really special, and I'm excited to talk to you about it. And I wanted to start, you know, it's almost too um, on the nose. The, uh, you know, in the, in the final piece in the collection, the novella, um, the uh, main character talks about this contemporary crisis of truth. In the there are ways in which we've been having that crisis for a long time. Then there are very acute, very egregious ways in which that crisis is is really reaching a, a breaking point right now. Um, so I just kind of wanted to start by um, talking to you a little bit about that idea. And um, I, I don't know when you started writing this um, this piece. I know it doesn't necessarily address our president or any of those sorts of um, political, you know machinations directly. um, But it was just it just seemed so striking to me, the talking about this crisis of truth, you know, while we have this sitting president refusing to accept the reality of his last election. And uh, could you just talk a little bit about about that as an idea of kind of something to start writing around? Yeah, I was
1: not intending a lot of the things in the collection that ended up being weirdly topical to be topical. (laughs) I was writing the, the book for 10 years and I started writing, I started writing the novella as the novella in 2018 and it was done by summer of 2019. But it was a kind of, I realized after I'd written the first draft that it was a new version of the novel that I'd been writing the whole time that I was working on the story collection. So You know, I've been thinking for a long time about this historian character um, and about the relationship between the stories we tell about history, our inability to confront history and our inability to kind of process or accept facts in the present. Uh That certainly does feel enormously relevant right now, but it wasn't um, intentionally. So even toward the beginning of that story, there is a, a joke about someone, a kind of joke about gentrified Juneteenth and about a bakery that sort of trying to celebrate Juneteenth, but has gotten the history wrong. And that was like in print in November, 2019, when the book went into press and it was already in galleys this summer when that became like a an active conversation. So I do think part of being a fiction writer is trying to sort of be slightly prescient. Ideally you wanna be like more than nine to 12 months prescient, but so you can only do what you can do about the future. <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, there's this incredible theme I think to to me as I was reading throughout You know, and and as you say, as you point out in the beginning of of the novella, The Office of of Historical Corrections, there is this the main character who is this historian who works for a an imagined but not unimaginable office called the, you know, the Institute Institute of Public History. Is that right? Uh, Institute for Public History. Yes. She basically is part of a team that goes around making corrections, um, whether to people if she overhears misstated facts about history, or you know, correcting plaques, monuments, that sort of thing. And and there is this this incident in a bakery where she's um, talking through this Juneteenth cake that yeah is in this very kind of bougie uh, bakery and and. I, I think that, you know, that's such a, that one is such a strong or such a um, kind of stark example, but, but in in various ways throughout the book, I think there are all of these different moments of you put people kind of in these positions of wanting to revisit the past to sort of reassure themselves in the present. And there's this sense of sort of like sanitizing history. And, and, and it's not even um, like in the, in the opening story uh, the main character works in a replica of the Titanic or like they, you know, and, and there's another family that's visiting Alcatraz um, and that's sort of layered into this family history. The, the grandfather has been um, dishonorably discharged by the by the military and, and has this deep history, you know, being a prisoner at Alcatraz. And, and so then the um, granddaughter is sort of walking through this space that's been kind of like theme parkified. Um and so there's this idea, there's always, I think to me, there was this presence of sort of like these simulacrums of reality that and of history that we kind of create to sort of like comfort ourselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um and I'm interested in the fact that both of the spaces actually exist, although the stories that are set there are completely fictional, right? That there are two different mini replicas of the Titanic where you can get married or host children's birthday parties. <laughs> and there's something sort of completely bizarre about that. There's something sinister and also a little bit endearing about that (laughs) um and I don't know what to do with it and so um I wrote some fiction about it but I do think that sort of trying to make history a digestible narrative or even a narrative that's interesting enough to attract people to it um often in in our conception of that involves telling a lot of lies um or creating an experience that um seems like it would be fun to live through trauma. (laughs) And so um, I I did want to sort of think about what it means to either have erasures of the past or to have these sort of weird preservations that are about something other than actual historical fact or memory.
0: Right. Yeah, you have this great phrase in the novella you talk you write about the desperate language of tourist traps everywhere selling a performance for people eager to believe they would found whatever they'd come for like this idea of like this is if i if i can like get married here or like throw my kid's birthday party here like you know in in the in the story of uh boys go to jupiter you know there's that um the reference to the sororities like plantation ball and the sort of like that kind of weird grotesque white romance with the idea of plantations that that persists and this idea yeah that if you can kind of turn it into something i'm sorry i paused because now that i'm thinking about it it's also just every all of this also has the like american consumerist mission just kind of shot through it all too but i'm not sure that was actually like the focus of your of your work but
1: no definitely i mean i think consumption is a is another kind of story right like all advertising is kind of selling us a story of who we want to be or could be if we buy the thing or go to the place or do the thing or change the thing about ourselves. And I think that that's very much connected to, for me, the the question at the heart of, I think, all fiction, certainly all of my fiction, which is about the sort of tension between the interior self and the exterior self, about the sort of tension between desire and performance. And I think that thinking about where people's kind of personal gaps between what they think and what they say or what they feel and what they do intersect with our kind of national gaps about what stories we tell about who we are or could be as a country or what kinds of other narratives out there are out there about who people are or should be um, is really interesting because then I think you sort of see not just the interior world of the characters and the internal tensions that create narrative possibilities in the story, but also you start to see the structural world of the story and where the forces are coming from that are demanding a performance or demanding a version of the self other than what feels true.
0: Yeah. I um, was reading an interview that you recently did with the New York times and you talk about a theme in this collection that you keep kind of writing around is the idea of the absence of choice, um, which I think maybe speaks to those interior exterior conflicts as well it's like this feeling of sort of wanting to move beyond or or push against like these kind of external factors that that you know are hemming you in and you kind of to some degree know that you can't change them but you keep wanting to to try to yeah i mean i think another theme of the collection
1: is this idea of of corrections right of of what of what can be corrected and I think sometimes the answer is maybe nothing, right? Sometimes the answer is that the only thing to deal with the trauma is to say that, that the trauma happened. Um, but there are so many ways we try to sort of narrate around that or adjust for that or ask for the right apology or change that would correct it when it's sort of Exists independent of any attempts at correction.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, let's talk more about that. Cause I definitely wanted to talk to you about correction as an idea, um, as it kind of manifests throughout the stories here and sort of just, you know, sometimes it feels possible and sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it feels desirable and sometimes it doesn't. And, you know, I, I, Read in that same Times interview, you talking about kind of what draws you to a short story writing as a form and the ability to kind of uh, uh, not commit, you know, to the to this to the sort of singular drive of of maybe like a novel would traditionally do and be able to kind of attack ideas from from a lot of different angles. Um, do you feel like this is kind of a collection of ideas about correction and and what it could and does and doesn't look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that was the theme that emerged when I was looking at the work together. I think, you know, the the fun thing about writing is that if you knew your own obsessions, all you would do is avoid them so you'd never get any work done. But right. luckily, you're usually unaware of them until you've accumulated enough material that it's sort of staring you in the face. So I'd written about half the collection and I was kind of still trying to figure out what it was about, where I would look at the stories together and I'd say, like, there's some kind of connective thread here, but I can't see it. And I would make it up or... You know, I had various ideas about what the book was about, but none of them would hold up because then I'd, I'd look at one story and say, well, this doesn't fit what I just said the rest of them were about. And finally, when I wrote the second to last story, I was like, oh, that's that's what this book is about. It's about attempts to correct the record. That is the sort of space of this book is what to do with the difference between our memory of the past or our records of the past or our own narratives about the past and some kind of other prevailing more widely accepted narrative. And what to do with the weird space sometimes in which, there's room for another version of the story and
0: you don't know what's prompted that. Right. Right. Are you, are you referring to what is like, what was published as the next to last story that anything could disappear?
1: No, um, no, the order in which they are in the book is not the order in which I wrote um, the second to last story that I wrote was um, why won't, why won't women just say what they want?
0: Right. Um, No, but I wanted to ask you about that story because I'm really curious about its place in the collection. Um, And, and I wonder, and you know, it's, it's very interesting to me that you say that that kind of unlocked something for you. Cause I think it does um, when I finished that story. And then again, when I finished the whole collection, I kind of was like, I wonder what this guy's doing in here. You know, just like he, I think part of it is because it is such a female. um, It is such a female book. um, And, and there's so, so much of the um, characters whose interiority we get access to are women. And of course, why won't women just say what they want is about women, but we're kind of still the sort of like burning center of all of these women is still this male artist who's done these hideous things to them and is kind of making this like performed apology. Um, Just let's talk about that story. What what do you think its place like kind of in the collection is?
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess I think a, a lot of the stories in the collection are about the difference between received narratives and the way those narratives look if somebody else is the protagonist and so i think mm-hmm. the structure of that story starts with a kind of very familiar cliche of somebody apologizing um in some public theatrical way um and a kind of narrative of of apology that we're used to from from public figures, often male public figures, who have wronged sometimes a lot of people, right? What I I hope at least is that the the structure of the story kind of gradually puts pressure on that narrative. So these women who start as kind of archetypes emerge into into more distinct figures and emerge into taking up more space of the story. um, So eventually the story is not actually about the thing at the center, that the structural work of the story is to think of the ways to see around that cliche seem to me like very much the work of the whole book.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting. Yeah. Cause the, and, and it's, it's really interesting how you tackle that in that particular story, because we, we learn like very few of those women's names. If you know, we're, we're kind of learning about, we're introduced to them sort of as archetypes as types, as like, as these, as these kind of contrivances or cliches that we're used to. And then it does kind of go to this, to this deeper, more nuanced place. I'm curious how, um, when you were first uh, talking about that with um, the received narratives, um, I found myself remembering this line in the novella, which I loved so much, because I think you, um, we can talk about this more, but I think you capture like, I lived in the Midwest for like five years and I I think you captured like the weird aggressive niceness of the Midwest in like such a perfect way that like I've never actually really been able to explain to anybody else, but I felt it and I didn't know how to (laughs) articulate it. So like, I really appreciate that. And like this line in particular, I'm not sure that you know, I could say that that has I, that I have any claim on this to my personal experience, but you you write, Midwest Nice was a steady, polite gaslighting I found sinister, a forced humility that prevented anyone from speaking up when they'd been diminished or disrespected, lest they be labeled an outsider. Um, and so that idea, yeah, of, of received narratives that you, that you talk about with why won't women just say what they want, thinking about those two ideas and those two pieces together, it, it illustrates for me something that I think you do incredibly well in this collection that I'd love to dig into a little bit more is, is the way that all of these themes um, that we've been discussing, the way that you bring them out on both the personal and the global level. And I think it can be really difficult um, you know, to kind of make those concepts sing kind of on both on both levels. Was that something that you that you're thinking about in the writing process or how do you does that resonate with you, that comment?
1: Yeah. And I should say, I mean, the thematic conversation for me is almost always an editorial conversation. It's never a first draft conversation, right? There have to be people on the page before I can um figure out what the story is doing. Um, So the story always starts with sort of the the human drama of it. And then when I'm revising and can sort of see more clearly the threads of the story or the questions of the story. I can sort of edit toward them. But I also think, I mean, we all, we, we do all live in a world where we're aware of the kind of structural politics and the structural demands made of us if we have any kind of Marginalized or politicized identity, especially. You um, know, it's the the story of uh, why women just say what they want. Um, one of the sort of eating notes was, "Did you mean for there to be a question mark in the title?" And I was like, "No, I didn't." The fact that it's not ever a real question is is kind of the point, right? That that there's this performance around women's interiority, in particular, being mysterious. When a lot of that is not mystery at all, the gap between what women say and what women feel is often not knowing or even not wanting to be straightforward but an awareness of the ways in which the truth is punished. I think that that exists in various ways throughout the stories right there is a clear understanding of someone's truth or just a sort of factual truth and also understanding of what's at risk and sort of saying it out loud and so that can be sometimes a very intimate drama in a in a romantic or familial relationship, but it can also be a very political drama depending on, you know, what person or entity needs to hear the truth.
0: Right. Yeah. That's making me think of, um, I don't have the exact phrasing in front of me at the moment, but one of the women who's being apologized to, there's this, uh, you have this line about um, as if it were a technicality because she hadn't asked to be treated. She hadn't technically asked to be treated as a human person. (laughs) Because it's like this idea of just like you can't, like not only is it internalized that you shouldn't really be speaking those truths, but also like the truths themselves are often so self-evident and then that you feel insane that they need to be spoken at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's the other anxiety inducing thing about about the truth that I think is something that has, that was, you know, that was a question of the stories before it was necessarily um, an immediately topical question this year, but it's one of the questions that I think came out of both the Me Too conversation and the Black Lives Matter conversation is like, people have been saying this all along. So there's something suspicious about the fact that you're listening now, right? Right. Um, And there's something about sort of, okay, well, now we believe you that can in and of itself feel like a new harm because it's like, well, why didn't you believe me before? And so I do think it's a complicated space. Sometimes it's a space of reckoning or apology because sometimes even when something does genuinely change, even when an apology is sincere, and I think part part of the space of the book is that many of them are not, but even when there's something that's actually being done, sometimes it just seems so easy when it finally happens that you're like, but but you could have done that all along. <laughs> you know. And then there's a sort of secondary emotional journey around that, around that idea of, okay, someone's finally listening and someone's finally taking this seriously. And now it's so much easier, which means it could have been easier all this time.
0: Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes me think of like, sometimes when we have like, even just personally, like if we have like, ways that we behave are like patterns that that we are trying to break, but like, we just can't seem to do it. It's like the first step of like acknowledging that you're doing it often involves like, admitting that like, you could have maybe been so much further ahead if you had caught this sooner. It's like, well, maybe that relationship wouldn't have failed. Or maybe like my career would be more successful, you know, like all the there's sort of these like negative space, negative spaces of grief that kind of have to happen when you do the acknowledging.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I think negative spaces of grief is a really interesting phrase because there's there's so much grief in this book. And some of it is a sort of obvious grief of of having lost somebody or experienced some kind of trauma. But there's also grief of kind of losing a version of yourself or losing a, either a past version of yourself or a vision for the future that you sort of used to hold dearly. And so I think a lot of the reckoning in this book is with that sort of negative space, with the sort of shadow life that eventually it becomes clear that somebody's not going to live.
0: Right. Yeah, that that really makes me think of anything could disappear, which is just such a the way that that unfolds. I would love to talk more about the process of of how that story came together um because you know, without giving too much away for for folks listening who should absolutely be reading this collection, um you know, it centers on a young woman who is kind of leaving her hometown, moving to New York, kind of a sort of so far a very classic, like, leaving it all behind, moving to the big city kind of story. Um, But she ends up caretaking for this little boy who's been abandoned by his mother on the bus that she's on um, going to New York. And, and so again, like the talking about those questions of choice, and when you have choice, like the absence or presence of choice, you know, it's, it's not that she chooses it, but she doesn't choose against it. She just kind of like floats into it in a sense, but then it sort of keeps working for her and keeps giving her something that she needs. And then, you know, she eventually has this reckoning with the fact that she is, you know, made these choices, however passively or or not. Um can you talk about sort of what what fascinated you as a writer like with Fira, like that that character and and her um her actions, her behavior?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think from a plot perspective, she was just a, a fun character to write because she was a person open to all kinds of attempts at reinvention. And so you can sort of push a character like that in a lot of plot directions and a lot of sort of literal travel directions that she spends some of the story in in motion in various ways. And so I think when that sort of performance of a new version of the self is really conscious, sometimes that's a really interesting space. And like often you get that with sort of younger characters, but she's sort of, a little older, but emotionally immature. And so there's this sort of almost adolescent determination that she can just sort of be someone else because she said she is. And so in some ways, even though this toddler is like a complete derailment of her original plan, it's also this sort of event is also like something is finally happening to her, right? And it and it turns her into someone else immediately and gives her a new narrative um, for someone who's trying to kind of escape this sort of sense of being stuck or stifled. But it's also, like, it's an enormously awful thing that she's doing. <laughs> and so I think part of the space of the story is that it's, it's, like, such a momentous thing that you know that it's going to catch up with her, right? There's, like, not really a possibility that the story's going to end with, like, and then they lived a happily ever after, and she kept this toddler and became his mother, right? Um, that, that's from the introduction of the sort of plot element, not really a possibility for the story. And so I do think it creates this interesting tension. You sort of knowing... That the story has to end in some way that's not going to be what the character wants but also um having some compassion for the character i think more so than if you believe she might actually get away with it from an emotional perspective i do think that part of what what's what is in that story is that sort of negative capacity right or that ambivalence about motherhood that many of the characters several of the characters at least in this collection have and so there's some slight relief for Vera when somebody sort of decides it for her right but then it immediately is its own crisis (laughs) and so I think that sort of sense of wanting to be your own person and understanding the way in which our societal conception of motherhood often sort of works against that and also wanting to be somebody's mother and wanting all the things that that means is is one of those sort of negative spaces that exists um one way or the other for a, a number of characters in the book.
0: Yeah, it was really um striking to me as you were talking to think about how so many of the characters in this collection, um, so much of their action is is responding, is reacting. You know, they're they kind of are in these situations of having to um, you know, in so much as anybody ever has control, they're not the ones with control. So they're the ones who are kind of like presented with the situation and then have to react accordingly.
1: Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I do think that part of this is again, a question of like, what version of the story are we telling ourselves? Like, does Vera have more choices than the ones that she makes? Probably, yes, right? From the perspective of some of the other characters in the story, her choices might look monstrous, you know? And they might look like they have much more agency than she tells herself she has in her head.
0: I'm, I'm really curious. Because I'm actually the the novel that I'm working on involves a mother who gives up a baby, and I'm really curious to talk to you about writing that story because I think that it's I can often think about that like that plot point for myself and my own work, and it was just like because again, of all of the things that you said all of the all of the ways that society um tells us mothers and motherhood are um you can think like I can't do this. She's not going to just do this. But then, like you know, you read somebody else do it, and you're like, yeah, they just do it. People do it all the time. You know what I mean? Like, did you have any sort of like, can I get away with this kind of feelings about either about the woman leaving the boy on the bus, and or Vera just taking him, and and it just that just being reality now?
1: No, you know, I mean, it's sort of been always reassuring to me that the the things that have had the hardest have been the hardest sell in fiction or in in workshop, or you know, if it's something I published, I've almost always been the things that actually happened. Right? So life is, is is much stranger than our imagining of it because a narrative has to have some logic, and life sometimes doesn't at all. And so, I, I don't worry that much about plausibility because I think people are capable of, of almost anything under the right circumstances. I do worry that if it's a character that we have access to, we have to understand some version of their story or some version of kind of what they've told themselves about the events of the story. But I don't, I don't worry that much about would somebody do this because like ultimately I'm the writer. And if I decide they would, they would.
0: Right. (laughs) Can we kind of transfer that a whole conversation to, um, to the story boys go to Jupiter. There are so many just like really clever like screw turns that you do in this story and I mean I think like just you know throughout the collection I can point to a number of examples of this but I remember like in the reading being like oh that's a really interesting choice and like making just like the the way that so to briefly set up you know there's a lot going on in the story but it, it kind of jump starts with this this college student Claire this young white girl who um, a picture of her in a Confederate flag bikini kind of goes viral and it leads to um, a lot of tension at her college some of which she Stokes kind of again with the same sort of like ambivalence like and and we learn as the story goes you know kind of the, the several sort of deeper threads that are going on with her um, but I thought it was just such a fascinating choice to, keep us in that. um, And it's a, you know, it's a close third. It's not like super, super tight into her interiority, but, you know, we're still with this person who is not especially sympathetic um, and who makes very strange choices um, kind of at every turn, you know, at some point she, she begins acting as if she's Southern um, and like starts speaking with her, with a Southern accent. And I would just love to talk about kind of like, how that story came to be in that form and 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 what was interesting to you about exploring that point of view.
1: Yeah. I mean I think one of the things about that story is that it it is in some ways like she is operating in similar terrain as Vera, except with almost the sort of inverse and like the thing about the tension in Vera's story is that you know that something is gonna go wrong. And the tension in Claire's story I think eventually is like how many ways she can get away with it. And so In some ways, it's a story where the sort of growing tension comes not from like waiting for the other shoe to drop, but the realization that there are so many escape routes for her. And it's it's also a story that is very much about grief and trauma. And I think I I think I think of that story in some ways also in conversation with Why Won't Women Just Say What They Want? Because it's another story where you have this sort of narrative where it's entirely focused on like, is this person who's done this thing sorry? And eventually you put enough pressure on that, that maybe the question is, is that the point? Like, does it matter? Because like who would have to be kind of fodder for that lesson? Originally I had envisioned that story as having, as being a novel as as I'd sketched it out um, years ago as a novel that would have like four main characters and it was was gonna be a campus novel and they would be um, involved in this controversy in various ways. And I felt like when I started writing that Claire's voice It was so easy to see around Claire that I felt like all those other characters were just kind of padding or scaffolding to put pressure on Claire's narrative. But like the world itself could put pressure on Claire's narrative if introduced to the story correctly. And so I just felt like it didn't need all of the space I'd originally imagined for it. It didn't need characters to come in and say directly, like, this is what you're doing wrong, Claire, that like the story could sort of speak for itself on those terms.
0: Right. Yeah. A thing that I think this that you do really well here is there are so many you know you you said at the outset like hopefully writers are are prescient to some degree about what they're working on, and there are a lot of very clear, very sharp ideas in this collection, but they never feel didactic. And, and I think that's something, you know, again, like, you know, thinking of my own work, that's something that I think is a struggle when there are things that you want to say, and not that you're kind of implanting, like, you know, not that you're like starting every story as a polemic and then trying to like fit a character around it. Like, I I don't, I don't think that that's what you're doing at all. But um, I'm just curious how, you know, what the process looks like for you of kind of implanting those ideas into the story, but not, you know, and making sure that it doesn't feel like, well, this is my essay about, you know, free speech on campus or like whatever. Like the, I'm thinking of like the libertarian character who comes to her and like how just sort of like how that feels just like, Oh, of course, this is what would happen on a college campus, but it's like a delivery system for like a really smart, like part of this, of this kind of larger argument, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that that's interesting is, that people, we often act as if people in fiction don't have politics, but like people in the world have politics, you know? And so I think it's okay for them to come explicitly onto the page um when they're part of a conversation about like how somebody makes a choice, right? When there's a sort of political framework that somebody would be conscious of in navigating a particular situation. And so I'm not afraid to pull that awareness into the world because a lot of our dialogue, sometimes even our sort of most intimate fights, are about politics. Like politics is fundamentally the system of values by which we decide who we want to protect, right? The system of values by which as a culture we decide who should live and who should die. (laughs) And so I think that is very much linked to all kinds of more personal or intimate kind of moral negotiations or tensions that um, sometimes it just is the most direct thing to have someone make the argument they need to make. Not always, because sometimes the language that we'd use for those conversations isn't necessarily the same language that we'd use for politics. Um, but when it is, I think it's not a problem to have it
0: appear in the dialogue as such. Right, right. Which makes perfect sense. And it just kind of is like one of those things that like, you know, listening to you say that, I'm like, all right, this is just a thing you hear in workshops over and over again. And you're just like, then, well, wait, why is this? <laughs> like, let's let's unpack why we're talking, you know, why we're asking that question in the first place, maybe. Can we uh talk a little bit more about uh the novella and kind of just first of all, like the concept of the novella, which is you know not something that you come across terribly often. Um you know, I read in that interview with you in the Times that that you kind of you kept trying to write a novel, but you kept spitting out all of these short stories instead. and um, can you talk about did you approach the office of historical Corrections thinking like, okay, a novella is the form for this, or did you did it sort of like was it like a, a growth spurt that you were like trying to manage?
1: No, I actually thought it was a novel at first. You may be sensing a pattern here. <laughs> right, um, I, I finished everything in the collection except for that. And so I had this idea that I almost had a story collection, um, but it wasn't quite, it still needed. It had like six stories and I, I thought it needs one or two more stories. I don't quite know what it needs. I know what it's about now. I know that it's about the sort of question of, of corrections of the record. I don't know why it didn't seem immediately obvious to me that the quote-unquote new novel that I was setting out to write was both not new because it was the novel that I've been working on for a very long time and also not a novel but like the missing piece of the collection about directions that I had been working on for years but it, it genuinely wasn't obvious to me when I was like what if I write about a historian but like find a way to make her kind of a detective so I did that and I wrote this sort of very messy draft and then I got to the end of that and I liked what I had, but I also realized, oh, this historian is basically a version of the historian for my novel, but with the plot problem solved, because now I've given her something to do besides like worry about her history book that she's not writing. And also, this is very much in conversation with everything I've already written. This is sort of the literal version of the question that all of the other stories are already asking. At that point, I was like, oh, this isn't a novel, it's a novella, and this belongs in this book. And then I just felt like it had as much space as I needed, right? That I didn't need to worry about making it long enough to be a novel or trying to kind of force it into a novel shape by following loose threads or creating what felt to me like unnecessary digressions. But I also didn't need to worry about it being short enough to be publishable in a magazine or a journal because it felt to me so obviously in conversation with the rest of the stories that I felt like that was where it belonged. Like I didn't have any desire to turn it into something else and so I I gave it the space that I thought that it needed and I felt like it needed novella space because it did need a kind of slow build it needed a little bit of world building it needed um some delays on the part of the narrator because I think there's a sort of slow unfolding that is partly a question of what she's willing to look at or not willing to look at so ultimately I just kind of wrote till it felt finished and um kind of trusted that it would feel like it belonged in the book when i gave it to my editor and happily it did.
0: You know, once you figured out that it was a novella, did you just kind of approach that as like, you know, a super short novel or do you feel like there's like different rules that a kind of like novella sort of has to have formally? I think and i mean i this is partly just me as a reader,
1: you know, i don't think there are categorical rules for anything necessarily, but i think the novels i like best kind of reinvent themselves. Like i tend to be a fan of either super maximal novels that go through a lot of voices or a lot of, a long period of time or end up feeling kind of collaged in some way. Or I like novels that are sort of very compressed. Um, Or I think one of my favorite novels of all time is Mrs. Dalloway, which somehow is kind of both of those things. Yeah.
0: Oh, it absolutely is, yeah, yeah, for sure. (laughs)
1: But I do think that the difference between a story and a novel to me feels like when you get to the end of a story, it's sort of the the end of a story or the beat, like right before the end of a story, you understand like what the story is actually about. And it takes all that time to kind of get to that space Uh where you understand the kind of subterranean story. Right. Whereas I think a novel... You never quite have a moment like that because the novel has to reinvent itself more frequently, right? It has to trade questions more frequently. So it kind of answers one thing and then tells you it can also be some other kind of thing. I I guess I do think of a novella maybe, or at least this novella, I think there are novellas that probably do feel more like novels to me depending on where you decide the cutoff for pages for a novella is. This felt more like a long, short story for me because I do think it was sort of building toward that sort of break in the story it was building toward that sort of space where the submerged part of the story comes to the surface and is like oh this is what you've been reading all along even though it does have a little bit of that sort of shape-shifting where the tone changes and it starts off feeling a little bit more humorous and emotionally distanced i think ultimately it feels like it follows story logic for me and not necessarily novel logic
0: yeah that's very interesting that makes perfect sense to me um like using that idea of like what is it like a short story is um about like the moment after which nothing will ever be the same it's like this is this this is that and stretched out and i think the way that you um manipulate time in it is is very interesting and i'm thinking too of like that last you know those those last paragraphs i like this idea of it kind of ascribing to a logic you know one logic or another and again these things are fluid but i don't know maybe Maybe my brain is is craving structure, especially right now for some reason. <laughs> um, who knows why? Um, I love what you said about uh, the the idea of the subterranean story. Um, let's talk about that. because um, it's something, frankly that like, I can feel like sometimes short stories can leave me, a little cold sometimes and I think just like kind of as a category which like obviously is too huge of a category to to make any kind of pronouncement like that but whoops I just did but like I think that maybe you know what I can often rub up against is what you're talking about is this sort of disconnect that I, that I might feel sometimes between what's, what's really going on and what's going on on the surface. And maybe sometimes it's just harder for me to connect the dots between the two um, in a, in a given story. Um, I don't think I didn't, I'm not speaking about your collection. I'm just talking kind of generally, but is that something that comes up while you're writing this idea of, of the subterranean story? You know, I know, and I know from my own writing too, like you say, um, you you only really after the fact are seeing like, oh, that's what this is about. Um, but at a certain point, I think in the writing process, you are kind of harnessing that recognition and, and sort of putting a foundation of it in there. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think once I get to the second draft of a story, I have to have an answer for what the story is actually about before I can continue revising. Um, I think there are lots of different ways that that relationship can work and part of what was interesting in this collection is that the emotional space of the story was more of a surprise to me than it was in my first book in part because I talk sometimes about active plot and emotional plot and sometimes it makes sense to think about the threads of a story that way sometimes there's more than two and so it doesn't quite you know it's not always a neat way to capture everything a story is doing But I do try to ask myself at the end of a first draft, like what are the active plot questions and did I resolve them in some way? And what are the uh, emotional or thematic questions? And did I leave enough room for the reader to engage those? Um, In this collection, often the emotional plot was doing something completely different than the active plot, right? My first book was largely coming of age stories. And so the emotional arc of the story and the plot arc of the story were often in the same place sometimes that was complicated by having a retrospective narrator who was looking back on something and so you're getting another layer there but usually there was an event or a decision in the story and the emotional response was to that event or decision and the way that it sort of changed a person's future or changed a person's sense of who they were and here because I'm, I'm writing about characters who are a little bit older I'm writing sometimes about grief or crisis or things that are beyond the scope of characters agency or about people who are just sort of not so much making choices as realizing they've already made choices. And so sometimes the emotional plot is just a kind of flat line. It's like, here's the thing that hurts or matters or that shapes everything. Um, And here is the plot of things this person can control, which often have nothing to do with the things that matter most, but is just kind of putting one foot in front of the other to get through the day or creating new drama to evade the sort of underlying grief of the story. And so the shape of this collection felt a little bit different than the stories in my first collection because I was thinking differently about that active and emotional plot split. And because I think the emotional plots were often a little bit more submerged. So it was it would take me longer in a first draft to realize what a person was actually doing. Like the, the story that took me the longest to get to the end of a first draft on uh, was Richard of York gave Battle in Vain in part because I had to write my into kind of what was actually troubling that character before I could understand the shape of the story.
0: Spread the love with WMFA merch, items designed to spark creative vibes for you and the artists in your life. Shop at wmfapodcast.com slash merch. That's wmfapodcast.com slash m-e-r-c-h. Continuing the, that thought about the active and emotional plots, are you looking for an emotional plot Um, to resolve? Do you think that's possible in the same way resolving an active plot is possible?
1: Um, Not necessarily. I mean, I think sometimes the point is that it's not resolvable, right? I mean, I think sometimes the point is grief or trauma is not going anywhere or that a person is not necessarily going to gain control over whatever the thing that they're going to gain control over is. I think sometimes when that sort of emotional plot is a kind of is the kind of negative space, then then maybe there's a potential for resolution because then you can sort of resolve that through epiphany or clarity of some kind. But sometimes I think a person's very clear on what's actually troubling them and it's doing them absolutely no good to be clear on it. <laughs>
0: right. It's so funny, like having this conversation, it just like clarifies for me just like how um, resentful I am of the fact that we that I just like, I want so badly, especially with like, issues of emotion I want it to just be like a clean linear narrative and then I'm like well just put it in a box Danielle and tell me why (laughs) tell me how it's resolved (laughs) like like which makes for first of all terrible writing but just like it's so funny that impulse to just be like make it neat and palatable which is like everything that this book is about like it's not neat it's not palatable you just have to like muck your way through it and sometimes you know but the other thought i had about that oh richard york um gave battle richard of york gave battle in vain that i can imagine being a very difficult kind of discovery process as the writer because um is it rena is it, am i remembering her name yes. right she's very standoffish right and she's very um she's very kind of emotionally aloof in this way that she takes actually quite a bit of pride in kind of at first you know she's sort of this like Um, She's kind of this like badass, like international reporter, like, she sort of gets dropped into this scenario. Um, And again, I found the, um, you know, thinking about just like the theme, a a sort of just like um, piece of imagery that I feel like kind of comes through. Out the collection is this idea, these like theme parks essentially, right? It's like you've got the Titanic, you've got Alcatraz, and you've got the uh, Dorian and Rena end up at this water park, and and I mean those are all very very different types of quote unquote theme parks. But this idea of just these sort of like bubbles where you can kind of go, and it's not quite reality, but it's not quite not. Um, is that something like? What does kind of the water park culmination of that story sort of mean for you? Yeah, I think it um it was
1: an ending I didn't know was the ending until I got there so I wish that I had a very clear like and this is why I decided to send them to water park but they kind of went to a water park and I was like huh, <laughs> can they go to a water park um and then it felt like it could because not only did it end the active plot in a kind of um in a way that felt concrete but also left space but it also Echoed back to like the story started with the sort of Noah's Ark theme, right? And right. so I think starting with the sort of grand biblical idea of water and ending at like a water park off the highway um, felt like it was it was like circling back to where we started, but like also accounting for all of the space that that it, the story had gone in between, both in the present action and the past.
0: Right, right. I think that you put that really well. That um, ending on a, in a way that is concrete, but that also leaves space. And I feel like that, you know, that applies maybe across all of these different forms we're talking about with short stories and novellas and novels, you know, this, this sense of like, can the reader sort of like, push beyond the last page and sort of imagine for themselves a little bit more, even if you know, the plot, the active plot is resolved, like, is there is there something that you can leave still kind of thinking about?
1: Yeah. um, And I think in, in that story, there's There's a confrontation that Rina has with her kind of subterranean emotional life, but it's not clear to me necessarily what she's going to do with that. There's a kind of reckoning Dory has with her wedding, but it's clear in the immediate, it's not clear to me what's going to happen in like the next year. It felt like still an ending because in some ways, what I had to write my way into there was that it was really a story about, in part, the, the tension between these two characters who we're looking at the other person as a person who's like made wrong or bad choices, right? That it was a sort of reckoning of mistakes of like, why why was it so important to either one of them to kind of see the other person's choices as wrong when it was really about a kind of internal conflict all yeah. along.
0: I do wanna wrap up with the last question that I like to ask everybody, um, which is what does creative satisfaction look like for you right now? <laughs> I don't even I don't know what it looks like in
1: general. I mean I I feel like if I were creatively satisfied like wouldn't be creating, you know, I'd be done. So I guess I I don't want to find out,
0: I guess, what creative
1: satisfaction is.
0: I love that. That's the first time anybody has had an answer like that, but it makes perfect sense. I respect it. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at WMFAPodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review on iTunes to help new listeners find the show. Have a question or author recommendation? Email me at hello at WMFAPodcast.com. Find me on Twitter and Instagram at CFBalisteer. Or leave a voicemail at 347-685-4836. Today's episode was edited by Andy Cubis. The WMFA logo was created by Unsold Studio, and our theme music is Jazz Dancer by Double Winter. Find them at doublewinter.bandcamp.com. WMFA is part of the Lit Hub Radio Network and is made in Pittsburgh by Courtney Ballastier LLC. All rights reserved.